If last week was a landmark week at the Supreme Court, this week was kind of a quiet week. Welcome to the term. Uh, I'm Jimmy Hoover. I cover the court for Law 360 here in Washington. And joining me now from New York is Law 360 editor-at-large and co-host Natalie Rodriguez. How's it going, Natalie? Hey, Jimmy. Pretty good. Although, you know, this is just not the show that we were planning to do today. <laughs> and I'm not feeling a little out of sorts. <laughs> Yeah, we were ready for like an extended episode to dive into all of the major blockbusters that the court was supposed to hand down this week, but we didn't really get any of those. There were only two decisions in argued cases on Monday and just this morning on Thursday. Yeah, and, and to refresh um, our listeners' memories, that means there's still 13 opinions to go, including some pretty big cases involving Trump taxes and financial records and abortion and... You know, we're just kind of been on the edge of our seat waiting for those. And normally the the court ends its session at right before July. Um, but there's like a big question mark now. I, I just don't know how they're going to get it done if if they do. Yeah, you were saying this last week and I I there was I had a little bit of optimism. And I say optimism because <laughs> I am definitely in the camp of wanting the Supreme Court to meet its deadlines and wrap up by the end of June. And I was a little bit optimistic last week that they'd be able to do it because um, they had, I think it was, you know, 14 or 15 decisions left at that point. But with only two today, they have 13 left, as you say, and only just a few days to do it. I mean, they have to wrap them up by Wednesday. Otherwise, they start going into July. And potentially, if they haven't, you know, handed down that many, they could go past the holiday weekend well into July. And just for a bit of historical perspective... It's been 24 years since the Supreme Court handed down a July decision. That was in 1996 um, in a case involving the savings and loans crisis, which, like, you know, people of my generation, we don't even really know what that was. But, <laughs> I mean, that was the last time they failed to wrap things up. So, yeah, with 2020 and the pandemic, you just never know uh, what's going to happen. Well, that's what I think a lot of folks have kind of been speculating about is, you know, just because they had to end up doing that telephonic conference um, in May and kind of just reorder, readjusting everything, um, that maybe they're just more behind than any of us kind of expected them to be at this point and that maybe those opinions just aren't written yet. Right. It doesn't help either that, like, this was a huge term from the get-go, yeah. right? Even yeah. before the pandemic, there were so... I mean, look at the cases that haven't been decided yet. You have the major abortion case um, out of Louisiana involving that Louisiana hospital admitting privileges law. You have the you know, the fate of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. You have a major um, church-state separation case out of Montana involving tax refunds. Um, for religious, uh, for donations to religious schools. I mean, these were all cases that were argued before the pandemic, and then they added their to their plate, you know, things like minor cases, like <laughs> you know, does Trump have to give his tax returns to, or I should say, his accounting firm to give his tax returns to investigating committees? I mean, these are big deals, and and the fact that the court has only had like a month to turn these around because of that uh, May teleconference occasioned by the pandemic, yeah, that was no help at all. Now, I know you had, we, we, before this call, we had been kind of talking about the breakdown of some past times when the courts just like dropped a bunch of cases, you know, five to seven per day for the last couple of days. So I, I guess, you know, it's not out of the realm of possibility that this could still be wrapped up technically next week, but it's just, 
sheer uncertainty right now. It's kind of hard to believe. I personally don't think it's going to happen. But I will be the first to say I was glad I was wrong because (laughs) it's been a long term. There have been a lot of ups and downs. And uh, I think, uh, you know, uh, at least speaking for myself, I'm ready to 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 kind of gear up and, and and get everything in order for for next term. But you know, I say that and like I feel like when I say that, I'm like tempting fate, and there's going to be like a surprise retirement <laughs> at the end of the term or something. But I don't want to freak out. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I didn't say anything. Anyway, should we get to the task at hand and talk about the two decisions, which were pretty interesting, that did come out this week? Um, I wanted to talk first about the one that we got this morning in a, in a big immigration case. Yeah, um, I, I think I'd forgotten actually just how many immigration cases the court had taken up this this term um, and frankly had forgotten about this one. Uh, so, Jimmy, can you kind of like kind of give us the, the lay of the land for the one that came down? The court handed down a splintered ruling in a kind of complicated uh, case involving the asylum process. And what it said was that immigrants that are placed in fast-track deportation proceedings cannot seek court review of their asylum denials. Uh, Basically, what had happened was there was a Sri Lankan national who was detained at the southern border and placed into these fast-track deportation proceedings. Those are the kinds of proceedings that Congress has set aside for certain immigrants who uh, cross the border without proper documentation, etc. And this Sri Lankan national had applied for asylum, claiming that, you know, he would have been persecuted upon his return to his native uh, Sri Lanka because he was a Tamil uh, ethnic minority. Um, but ob- go ahead. Credible, credible fear is like a you know a, a big topic in immigration asylum proceedings. I know that that's been kind of argued about a lot this this past year. That's right. So the immigration judge rejected his claim that there was a credible fear of persecution upon his return to Sri Lanka. And he wanted to appeal that in federal court. So he brought a federal habeas action, essentially. But what makes this complicated is that Congress said that there is no habeas relief for these types of denials when an immigration judge says that there's no credible fear of persecution. Now, he appealed that all the way to the Ninth Circuit, and the Ninth Circuit said that that congressionally passed statute that tells immigrants placed in these fast-track deportation proceedings that they cannot bring a habeas action challenging these credible fear denials, that that provision of the immigration law is unconstitutional. It violates the suspension clause and due process clause of the Constitution. Now, just to refresh everyone's memory, the suspension clause says that the privilege of writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended unless when, in cases of rebellion or invasion, the public safety may require it. So the Ninth Circuit holds this, and the federal government appeals this all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, which decided the case on Thursday. So what did the majority say on Thursday? So Justice Alito writes the opinion for the majority on Thursday, and he says that this is not a violation of the suspension clause or the due process clause. On the former question, he says that in 1789, when Congress adopted this clause about the suspension of the writ of habeas corpus, habeas corpus was actually more to do with a detained in a kind of imprisonment sense and not necessarily in the immigration context. And so he says, you know, an immigrant can't seek habeas corpus relief under that clause because that doesn't cover that situation. Now, Justice Breyer, Justice Stephen Breyer, and Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, concurred in the judgment, but just as Breyer wrote a concurrence that Ginsburg joined, basically saying that I wouldn't reach these broad questions about what the suspension 
uh, clause means in the broader immigration context. And I would just apply it to the Sri Lankan nationals individual case. So they wanted a much more narrow ruling. Now, Justice Sonia Sotomayor and Justice Elena Kagan dissented to all of the above, and they said that absolutely this is a violation of the suspension clause as the Ninth Circuit held. And what the majority has done is essentially cut off court review to thousands, hundreds of thousands of immigrants who come into this country um, you know, every year with valid asylum claims whose claims may be denied for improper reasons, and they should be able to get their day in court about that. So that was kind of a nutshell um, retelling of the court's, you know, 100-page ruling um, this morning in this very complicated asylum case. But Natalie, you were going to talk about the court's ruling on Monday in an equally interesting case involving the Securities and Exchange Commission, right? Yeah. So on Monday, the court handed down a ruling that basically said the SEC could use disgorgement, which is like one of its biggest enforcement tools. But it puts some serious limits on how it could do so. Um, in an 8-1 opinion written by Justice Sonia Sotomayor, um, the court said that the agency could continue to use this tool as long as the award does not exceed a wrongdoer's illicit net profits and as long as it goes to the victims. And in, if it can meet these two parameters, it can be considered equitable relief. So in this specific case, Charles Liu and Xin Wang who had been accused of defrauding EB-5 visa holders for investments into a cancer center that was never built. Um, They had originally been ordered to pay $27 million in disgorgement. Um, This case now, with the Monday's opinion, is now headed back down to the lower court on remand to have that number recalculated. And it's expected to be lower. So was this a win? Was this a loss? Some kind of, you know, mixed bag for for the parties here? How did did the court get to this decision? Definitely a mixed bag for the SEC. Um, To just, you know, to take a step back, the SEC is authorized only to seek equitable relief in civil proceedings. Like that is what Congress has told it it can do, (laughs) you know, in in the books. Um, Congress, though, never really defined what fits into that umbrella though of equitable relief and disgorgement is this kind of like not super well-defined tool and kind of a new tool um, which we'll get into later in from Clarence Thomas's uh, dissent in this opinion Um, and you know there's been this question of whether it fits as an equitable relief tool or a penalty tool Um, you know just to kind of like get the the lay of the land so a penalty being like, you know, you're going above and beyond and punishing someone for their punishing, behavior exactly. and equitable is kind of like, it's kind of like to make people whole, right? Make people whole. Yeah. Uh, you know, pay back the funds to the victims. Um, yeah. So, you know, as, as uh, Justice Sotomayor noted in her opinion, you know, normally disgorgement has been used by the SEC in, as kind of like this equitable relief tool making victims whole. But over the years, the agency and courts, they've been kind of like testing the bounds and, and kind of pushing on the bounds of this, you know, depositing funds into the treasury rather than giving the proceeds to the victims, not deducting legitimate expenses. Um, you know, an interesting part of Monday's ruling was that the court has to deduct legitimate expenses um, from before ordering disgorgement. So, you know, the, the, the petitioners in this case, they had defrauded millions from their investors but some of that money actually did go to legitimate use uh towards a lease for the land for the cancer center and and towards other issues um and 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 the petitioners you know they had kind of 
grasped onto this 2017 Supreme Court ruling um, where the, the court had said disgorgement was being used as a penalty for purposes of this case that was, you know, talking about statute of limitations, um, you know, and at that time, the court did expressly refuse to decide whether it would whether disgorgement could become equitable relief in any form. Um, so that that is what, you know, Monday's opinion, you know, finally gave some guidance on, you know, uh, Justice Sotomayor, she, she, her opinion uh, at one point, she wrote decisions from this court confirmed that a, rem- a remedy tethered to a wrongdoer's net unlawful profits, whatever the name, has been a mainstay of equity courts. So the whole point is that it can seek disgorgement, but that disgorgement can't exceed the wrongdoer's net unlawful profits, right? Exactly. And it has to go back to the victims. So no more depositing all that money in the treasury. <laughs> well, there's a little question. Uh, right. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> this for, one for is- certain, certain places, you know, there there's definitely um, uh, s- some people who have been following this case do contend it, it raises some more questions than it answers you know can the funds de- be deposited in the treasury for any reason like going to the whistleblower program uh can the uh, sec seek disgorgement for insider trading uh you know if it does where would the profits go there's no real victims you can uh right. you can point to in insider training issues so uh, a couple unresolved questions there but it sounds like the the, the sec avoided its its worst case scenario in the case losing one of its the prime tools in its toolbox for for you know going after uh corporate malfaisons and investing malfaisons and everything like that definitely well that's it for what the court did this week uh obviously we'll be waiting with bated breath uh to see what is left in store for next week uh we're expecting more opinions to come out on monday and tuesday and Potentially, if they can't get all 13 decisions out um, by Tuesday, the end of June, uh, then it'll have to spill into the rest of the week in July and potentially, dare I say it, after the holiday weekend because we are now in uncharted waters. Well, I, for one, will be sitting on the edge of my seat until this is all done. Um, Jimmy, thanks so much for just talking through everything that's happened this week and what might happen next yeah what a crazy term and thanks to our listeners for tuning in we'd like to thank our producers and editors Stephen trader and daniel smith our executive producer amber mckinney and our contributing reporters this week suzanne maniak and dean seal music for the show comes from slender beats for more information about all the high court action please go to law360.com slash the term You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 in the term. Thanks for listening. Oh, and please write us a review.